This week on the show, we have AM5X86-based retro Unix build locks for you. We also set up services in the Freenas jail. We have the first taste of Dragonfly BSD article for you. A streaming Netflix on NetBSD article, which might be interesting to a lot of people. We also have NetBSD on the last G4 Mac Mini, a Hammer versus Hammer 2 comparison, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. PSD Now, episode 306, Comparing Hammers, recorded for the 10th of July, 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode of BSD Now. We have, of course, uh, put up together a nice uh, show for you, as always, uh, starting with the headlines, uh, Polprox AM5X86-based retro Unix build log. Uh, so they say, I recently acquired an AM5x86 computer in surprisingly good condition. This has been an ongoing project, so check back on this page for updates. Uh, so they say they began by connecting a front panel. Uh, the panel comes from a different chassis that is slightly too wide, so I had to attach it with a couple of zip ties. <laughs> However, it makes it uh, stick out from the PC front at an angle, allowing easy access when the computer sits on the floor. And that's where it sits most of the time. Uh, it's not that bad, to be honest, and it's way easier to access than if it were mounted vertically. The The mains power switch on the front panel, uh, because the computer uses an older style power supply, instead of re relying on the PS-ON signal from the modern ATX motherboard, uh, run a four-wire cable to a main switch. The cable carries live and neutral both ways, and the switch key uh, in or out the power. The system powers on as soon as the switch is enabled. Originally, there was no graphics card in this machine. Since a PC will not boot without a GPU, I had to find one. Uh, the mainboard only has PCI and ISA slots, and all the GPUs I had were AGP. Fortunately, I bought a PCI GPU hoping it would solve my issues. However, the GPU turned out to be faulty. It took me some time to repair it. I had to repair a broken trace leading to one of the EEPROM pins and replace a contact on the EEPROM socket. Uh, then I replaced all the electrolytic capacitors on it and uh, that fixed in it. Now it's good. Hmm. Having uh, used up one uh, of the three PCI slots, I popped through the remaining pair with Ethernet cards. I also have a bunch of ISA slots available, um, but nothing to install there yet. Fitted out the computer with two three and a half inch floppy drives and a CD drive, and the main hard drive is a 512 megabyte PQI disk on module. Um, these little modules are essentially IDE flash disks that you're using flash for older computers, basically a way to keep older computers going with newer flash. Uh, and they only cost about eight dollars without the power cable, so that's pretty good. Uh, at first, they tried running 386BSD 0.1. I transferred the boot image on the floppy disk and tried booting into a minimal shell. Unfortunately, the installer fails when creating the file system, although running NuFS directly does seem to work. Since the installer is a binary and I don't uh, feel like debugging a 30-year-old OS, there's not much I could do there. But I did discover an Easter egg that shows up when there aren't any hard drives detected by the OS. Uh, no disks drive to install 386BSD on. 
Would you care to have it installed on your TV instead? And if you say yes, it says, sorry, installation on TV sets not allowed under CCIR Green Book, the 15th Plenary Assembly of Geneva, 1982, Volume 9, Part 1, International Telecommunications Union, page 192, paragraph 4. In case you want to look it up, yeah. <laughs> so I tried to install it on a different disk, a 40 gigabyte one, but it failed with invalid seek or formatting. That disk might be too big for that old of a machine. Fortunately, archive.org publishes many BSDOS install medias, including BSDOS 4.2. Uh, BSDOS feels incredibly modern on a first impression. However, the bundled software age uh, starts to show very quickly. And they say, while searching for floppy images online, it's impossible to miss the plethora of DOS software and boot floppies. I've got original DOS 6.22 and Windows NT install media, a DOS 6.22 and 3.3 on a bootable floppy. Ah, yes, that's a nice trip down memory lane. So in our next story, we have setting up services in a free NAS jail over at IX Systems, uh, their blog. And um, they always have nice, uh, insightful articles. Um, this time, uh, they write, this piece demonstrates the setup of a server service in a FreeNAS jail and how to share files with the jail using Apache 2.4 as an example. Jails are powerful, self-contained FreeBSD environments which separate network settings, package management, and access to thousands of FreeBSD application packages. Popular packages such as Apache, Nginx, LightTDPD, uh, MySQL, and PHP can be found and installed with the package search and package install commands. This example here... Uh, provides or, or creates a jail, uh, installed a Apache web server, and sets up a simple web page. Uh, they do note that uh, you do not atta- directly attach FreeNAS to an external network. Um, use the port forwarding, proper firewalls, and DDoS protections when using FreeNAS for external websites, of course. And while you might want to expose the web server via the firewall, you don't want to expose the FreeNAS web interface because it's not meant for that. And so, yeah, this example uh, demonstrates expanding the functionality of FreeNAS in an isolated local area network environment, like an office. Um, the jail and service setup is fairly straightforward. In the FreeNAS web interface, you go to jails on the sidebar, click the add button, and then click the HTTP for most home networks, uh, though a static IP address can also be assigned if you want. And in advanced settings, the auto start checkbox for automatically starting the jail after booting FreeNAS is something you want to have so that it's not... Um, after the next reboot, just not stop or just get started as usual. Uh, to start a jail manually, click the jail options menu with the three dots icon and click start. And after the jail starts and status is up, open the jails option again and then click the shell to open a terminal to the jail so you can go inside your little uh, jail cell. Uh, the jails have a unique IP address shown on the web interface um, with the default DHCP setting dynamically obtaining an IP address. If you type ifconfig to see the jail network information in the terminal, you can uh, find out which uh, IP you got. And for networks without DHCP support, a static IP address can be set, as they uh, told us, in the advanced settings menu. So on the first start, a PKG will uh, ask to run package update to gather the latest list of packages available to search through and install. And then you just type package install Apache 22.4, then service Apache 2.4.1 start to see that it's after installed, uh, just starting as a service. And to have that start each time the jail is started from rc.conf in etc, add Apache 2.4 underscore enable equals yes to at the bottom, and then type service Apache 2.4 start. And then you have your Apache web server running. And then they talk a bit about how to 
give out access to the files. You want people to be able to put stuff on this web server. Uh, so one option is to create a user and make its home directory be that the website root, uh, and they show how to do that, uh, or how to actually share the website root as a Samba share so that people can just copy and paste the files from a Windows or Mac machine into that directory, and it will show up on the web server. Uh, or you can mount an existing data set that already exists on your NAS somewhere uh, into the jail, making that data set available there. Ah, yes, that makes it much more useful. And they also uh, talk about using FTP or SFTP in case that's the workload that your web developer is used to uh, and showing how to set that up. Mm-hmm. With screenshots so you can follow along. And they say one more tip. If you're used to Ubuntu or some other Linux distro uh, and you don't like using VI, you can just do package install nano and it will add the, uh, the editor you're probably used to. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't need... Uh, a extra degree to get out of so yeah that's a pretty straightforward article to get something done and it's a contained environment as we mentioned so the jail is protected so next up we have another blog post from Nan Yao uh, who's in the past has done a bunch of spelunking in OpenBSD and talked about or, uh, you know, learning how programs work and reading the source code and having fun. So now they have a uh, post here saying, first taste of Dragonfly BSD. Oh. They say, last week I needed to pick a BSD operating system which supported Numa to do some testing. So I decided to give Dragonfly BSD a shot. Dragonfly BSD can only run an x86-64 architecture, which reminds me of Arch Linux, uh, and after some tweaking, I feel Dragonfly BSD may be a developer-friendly operating system, at least for me. I mainly use Dragonfly BSD as a server, so I don't care whether the GUI is fancy or not, but I have high performance uh, for developer tools like compilers and debuggers. The default compiler on Dragonfly is GCC 8.3, and you can also install Clang 8 from packages. This means I can test state-of-the-art features and compilers, and it's really important to me, including GDB version 7.6, which is a little lag behind, but still pretty good. Furthermore, the upgradation of Dragonfly BSD is pretty simple and straightforward. I followed uh, the document on upgrading the operating system uh, to 5.6.0 this morning, just copy and pasted, no errors, boot successfully. Last but not least, there are many out-of-the-box packages which I can explore in the future. Uh, Sounds quite interesting. And they recommend maybe you give it a try as well. Yeah, as a first uh, taste in Dragonfly, or as a, your first BSD Unix at all. They're definitely doing a lot of interesting stuff with the new AMD hardware. Yeah, something that the other BSDs aren't necessarily doing, or in a different way. So it's always good to look a little bit left and right what the other folks are doing. So next, over on unitedbsd.com, uh, we have a post in the NetBSD section saying, I don't give up that easily. So here's a step-by-step guide to allow you to stream Netflix videos on NetBSD by using the new Intel Haxam Accelerated uh, QMU VM. And the heads up that the guide uh, apparently doesn't have sound working, but there's a solution later in the thread. Uh, So start by obtaining the sources according to Chapter 30 of the NetBSD guide. Uh, Basically, you just need to get the sys source and set that up. Uh, Once done, upgrade your system and install QMU and then create the Hexam device and load the module. Then you can use a QMU image to create an empty VM and boot it up. Um, so they're going to use a Ubuntu-based distro called Peppermint uh, and install that in their VM there. Uh, and then they were just 
playing Netflix on Linux, I guess. Ah. And they also cover how to clean it up when you're done. And they mention for the sound, they had to um, set um, the QMU OSS variables for the ADC and DAC to use dev audio instead of dev DSP. And then suddenly their sound worked. Which is desirable, actually, for watching videos. <laughs> cool. That seems not too difficult to get started. Yes. And I imagine somebody could adapt that for Beehive for FreeBSD as well. And even VMM for OpenBSD. Oh, yeah. That's certainly nice to have. Very cool. Thanks for that uh, how-to. Mm -hmm. And we haven't heard something in a while, or we haven't covered in a while, uh, Michael W. Lucas's latest uh, writing efforts. Uh, this time, it's Pseudomastery 2nd Edition, the cover art reveal. Yes, you definitely need to go see this one for yourself. Yeah. Uh, but basically, um, he got uh, Eddie Schramm to basically make a, a version of the iconic dogs playing poker. Uh, but in this case, we have... Uh, no dogs. Three beasties, two tuxes, a puffy, and a, I forget what the raccoon is called. The raccoon is, uh, um, oh, isn't that the IPsec thing? No, uh, it's Minix. Oh, right. So Rocky is the name of their raccoon. Rocky raccoon. Um, all sitting around a table playing poker there. Uh, and if you look very closely, you'll notice that one of the beasties is wearing a black turtleneck and is being slipped an ace under the table by one of the other beasties. <laughs> nice reference there. <laughs> Michael writes, About halfway through the new edition of Pseudomastery, assuming that nothing terrible happens, should have a complete first draft in four to six weeks. Uh, enough stuff has changed in Pseudo that I need to carefully double-check every single feature. He's also horrified by the painfully obsolete versions of Pseudo shipped in the latest versions of CentOS and Debian. But people running those operating systems are already accustomed to their creaky obsolescence. <laughs> but the reason for this blog post, as Alan mentioned, he wants to reveal the glorious cover art, and the patronizers saw it last month, uh, so a little bit earlier than the others. Uh, so now the rest of the world can get a turn. Yeah, and then he uh, also talks about the weird shape of the image. So this is a weirdly shaped image for a book cover, but there's a reason. If you buy the ebook, you will get uh, the cover with three beasties and a tux. And you wonder why the unbalanced ratio. Note that one of the beasties has a turtleneck. Um, print book uh, purchasers will get uh, tux and minix Rocky on a wraparound cover as well as the, the main focus there. Hardcover book purchasers will get that plus a puffy on the inside flap. Sadly, Dragonfly doesn't have a cartoon mascot. Uh, they're not left out, though. Uh, and no, you would not be the first person to note that I shouldn't be allowed to come up with my own cover art. And no, I'm not telling you what medication I'm on. That's both personally and a trade secret. <laughs> he says, this fantastic cover art is possible mostly because of my sponsors. Uh, and you still have a bit of time if you want to become a print or ebook sponsor for Sudo Mastery 2nd Edition. Also, just a reminder, uh, you should definitely check out FreeBSD Mastery Jails. Uh, you know, we just talked about how powerful the jails on FreeNAS are. And if you use jails at all, uh, there are innumerable secrets and helpful tips and so on that you could learn by grabbing FreeBSD Mastery Jails. Yes, you never know when you want to set up a proper jail environment. So this book is handy to have. If, if you 
are hearing, you know, Sudo Mastery Second Edition. You're like, I use Sudo. I I wouldn't have anything to learn. It's like everybody has something to learn about Sudo. Uh, there's a lot more going on there than you might think, uh, and a bunch of things you're doing probably don't work as well as you think they do. Uh, there are quite a few good trips, tips, tips in here, including. Uh, properly allowing people to edit files as root without actually letting them be able to escape. For example, if you just let somebody run their text editor as root in order to edit that file, then, you know, they can do things like load other files in their editor uh, and so on. That's not good. Uh, and so you definitely need to check out the book and learn some things about what you can do and how you can do it better with sudo. And since this is a software package that's available on most Unix systems, it's good to learn it once and then use it many times on different Unix systems. And now for something completely different. We have a NetBSD on the last G4 Mac Mini. This article here covers exactly that. Um, so first, uh, in little brackets, first as a public service message, if you're running Linux on a G5, you may wish to update the kernel. There's a little link to the article there. But the actual article goes into details with uh, that uh, the author is a big fan of NetBSD. Uh, he's run it since 2000 on a Mac uh, 2 CI, of course, it's still running, <laughs> and ran it for several years on a Power Mac 7300 with a G4, uh, G3. G3 card, sorry, and uh, which was the second incarnation of the Floodgap Gopher server. Cool. Uh, today, I also still run it on a MIPS-based Cobalt RAQ2 and an HP Jornada 690. Ooh, that's certainly cool hardware uh, from way back when. Uh, I think NetBSD is a better match for smaller and underpowered systems than current-day Linux and is fairly easy to harden and keep secure even though none of those systems are exposed to the outside world. And they provide a couple of uh, pictures, of course. Uh, recently, they had a need to set up a bridge system that would be fast enough to connect two networks and happen to have two of the secret last of the line 1.5 gigahertz G4 Mac minis sitting on the shelf doing nothing. Yes, they're probably outclassed by later Raspberry Pi models, but he doesn't have uh, uh, have to buy anything extra or like putting old hardware to good use. So there it is, doing serious business, with the total cutlay being the cost of one weekend afternoon. And the article goes into much more detail about how it got set up uh, with the devices uh, that are being used and how to boot the first time. So with a little screenshot tour, you can see how the, that went. Oh, that's quite comprehensive down there. Huge amounts of detail in there. <laughs> yeah. They write that you should be comfortable with compiling your own kernels in NetBSD. Not only is it just good to do for auditing purposes, but you can also slim the kernel down substantially or enable other less common features. Providing or adding patches is also mentioned. And yeah, if you are interested in that, read the full article. There's certainly uh, gems that can be used on other systems as well. Concludes with, overall, I think the G4 Mini makes a fine little server. I wouldn't use it as a client except uh, in Mac OS X itself, and I'm forced to admit that even that is becoming less practical these days. Uh, but as a little machine to do important back-office tasks and do so reliably, I think NetBSD on the Mini is a good choice. Once all the kinks with the installation got ironed out, it's uh, so far it's been solid and performant, especially considering this machine is over 13 years old. Um, versus I'm happy with its performance even on 13 or sorry 30 year old machines uh, rather than buying something new if your needs are small it's probably you've got some old machine around that could just do it 
some of these old systems can still be useful. Okay. So next up, uh, Foronix has Hammer versus Hammer 2. Uh, benchmarks on Dragonfly BSD 5.6. Uh, now that 5.6 has been newly released, there are improvements to the original Hammer 2 file system to the extent that it now is the default in the installer. Uh, and so they were wondering what's the difference between Hammer 1 and Hammer 2. So in their first run of the Postgres uh, PG Bench, uh, they found almost no difference between Hammer 1 and Hammer 2 on the uh, read-only workload. However, on the read-write workload, um, Hammer 2 outperforms uh, Hammer 1 by more than double. That's significant. Yep. Looking at Blogbench, again, on reads, Hammer and Hammer 2 are about the same speed. But on writes, uh, Hammer 2, again, is almost twice as fast as Hammer 1. Okay, they're doing something there. That's definitely better. Yeah, looking at the Git benchmark, time to complete common Git commands. Uh, Hammer two is, or sorry, Hammer one is actually a tiny bit faster, but about the same. But if you look at Postmark doing disk transaction performance, uh, Hammer one gets seven hundred and thirty-four transactions per second, and Hammer two does three thousand seven hundred and ninety-six transactions per second. Oh, wow. Okay. But overall, Hammer 2 is performing well during the initial testing, and great to see that the write speeds are much higher than Hammer 1. They say Hammer 2 also offers better clustering, online deduplication, snapshots, compression, encryption, and even more modern file system features. So if you have a need for uh, mostly writes, then definitely Hammer 2 is something you should consider over Hammer uh, 1. Like a log server, maybe? Could be something that might be... Uh, benefiting from that well, well in this case i think a postgres server <laughs> oh yeah that of course databases why didn't i think of that <laughs> write mostly database servers i mean reading is not bad but there's no significant difference whether you use hammer one or two on those according to those um, benchmarks there might be other use cases for uh, where their differences are more apparent but so far so good next up we have a really fun one did you know that there's a relational database hiding in your Unix command line? <laughs> yeah, this is what the BC bits will have for you this week. So they say, uh, a friend of mine was recently telling me about his discovery of the join command, which allows you to combine data from multiple files that contain tabular data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See where this is going. Uh, so in their example here, they have two files. One is called courses.csv, which has the course... Uh, acronym and number, and then a comma and the name of the course. So CIS162 is Computer Science 1, and MTH225 is Discrete Structures 1, which is probably a math course, and so on. Then the enrollments.csv has the name of the student and which course they're in. Mm-hmm. So to complete an inner join, uh, it says, by default, the join command behaves as an inner join in SQL. That is, each pair of matching lines from both files will be printed, but no additional lines from either file uh, that they may have matched. So to illustrate this, they show join dash t comma, because that's this delimiter, dash one, two, dash two, one. And then they feed that from sort uh, by the course and from the enrollment file and the uh, course from the courses file. And the output you get is the name of each course, the name of the student, and the actual, or sorry, the, the code, the course code, 
the student name and the course name for each course. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that, you know, uh, both Ryan and Alice and Bob are all, or no, sorry, Ryan and Alice are both taking discrete structures to math course. Yep. And you'll notice that uh, the one course that two students are enrolled in but isn't defined in the courses.csv is missing. Haha, that's not a match here. So if you want to do an outer join, it shows you how to do that. And you can see that in that case, it prints out uh, the list of people who are not in a course. Uh, or an excluding matches one here. They have a list of courses that nobody's taking and a bunch more. And they also show how you can use awk as the select command, basically choosing which fields you want to print out. Uh, cut can do a bit of that, but awk does it smarter. Yeah. Uh, grep can be your where part. You can filter out so that only matches the bits you want. The unique command provides, you know, select distinct or whatever. And the sum command will allow you to do sum. It says, uh, in conclusion, uh, I'm not sure when or why I'll end up using this, but it's pretty cool to know uh, and useful. I've done all kinds of weird things, like just download sets of transactions from a bank, convert the format in order to upload it into accounting software or something. Mm-hmm. Having those standard tools instead of having to try to do it in like a spreadsheet program makes it so much faster and easier. Oh, yeah, and that's where Unix shines. The text processing is just amazing. Exactly. Very good. So, yeah, you can add the um, join command to your uh, Unix toolbox. Yes, uh, the join, paste, and lamb, as in laminate, are all uh, very useful for stuff like that. Okay, uh, something along the lines like this is the next article that we have, the TTY Demystified, because it also deals with a lot of (laughs) texting and teletyping. Um, the teletype subsystem or TTY is central to the design of Linux and Unix in general. Unfortunately, its importance is often overlooked and it's difficult to find good introductory articles about it. I believe that a basic understanding of TTYs in Linux is essential for the developer and the advanced user. They talk a bit about the history with, um, the 1980, uh, 1869 stock ticker when that was invented. And yeah, this was an electromechanical machine consisting of a typewriter, a long pair of wires, and a ticket tape printer. And its purpose was to distribute stock prices over long distances in real time. This concept gradually evolved into the faster ASCII-based teletypes. Uh, Those teletypes were once connected across the world in a large network called Telex, which was used for transferring commercial telegrams. But the teletypes weren't connected to any computers yet. And then they talk about some of the use cases of modern teletypes, like uh, the UART driver and how that hooks into the line discipline, then into the TTY drivers for user processes. So that's a fairly good coverage. Yeah, and how it comes back to line editing to let you do stuff like handling the backspace key and session management stuff for you know being logged in on a TTY and on and on. Oh, yeah, that's certainly a good way of... Uh, introducing yourself or reintroducing yourself even to the TTY. Then we found a Ranger, a console file manager with VI key bindings. So you can see from the screenshot here that this is certainly a familiar environment. Uh, Ranger provides a minimalistic and nice curses interface with a view on the directory hierarchy. It ships with a rifle. Oh, okay. Ranger and rifle. Okay. Uh, A file launcher that is good at automatically finding out which program to use for what file type. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, Yeah. Then we have some Unix humor over at Reddit. I remember seeing this tweet when I went by. Uh, so JSON as a service, 
uh, tweeted <laughs> uh, the Mary Kondo memes. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's a lady that wrote a book about Japanese um, organization and stuff. And it's basically how to declutter your house by throwing away things that you keep for no reason. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so she basically, the concept is that you look at an item and decide whether it, it makes you happy or not. And if it doesn't, then why are you keeping it? Uh, but the phrase, the way it translates or whatever is, you know, does this spark joy? And so it goes at Marie Kondo asks, uh, why do you have so many old sun computers in your basement? And Jason answers, because they all spark joy. But spark spelled as, as you know, the sun spark microsystem <laughs> thing. And then someone even follows up on the pun and says, Bill Joy approves. Because <laughs> the joy in there is... Is also happens to be the creator's last name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the discussion is, of course, uh, ongoing a little bit. Yes, even to the point where somebody is uh, motor-rolling on the floor laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and someone says, I can't think of a single reason to sell off my servers. If you could ilomos me, I would. Uh, I should go through the AX and pains of moving my hardware. It's Xenix enough to find a buyer. Collectors are everywhere. Now they're just pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, the little laugh from the sun area. But then we have uh, a very fun one here uh, from our friend uh, Marie Helen. She's got, this weekend, I decided to set up a single drive FreeBSD plus ZFS system and prove that you can remove and replace the only hard drive without rebooting, or sorry, without service interruption. So recap of the video. The prerequisite is that you have a standard FreeBSD 12 install uh, with root on ZFS, where the root pool is smaller than the amount of RAM you have in your system. So in this case, uh, if you have 8 gigabytes of system memory, you only have a 4 gigabyte root pool. And we're going to replace the existing drive with a memory-backed block device, uh, physically remove the existing drive, verify the system still works, then attach a new hard drive, replace the memory-backed device with the new hard drive, uh, and then be done. And then, as a last step, reboot the system and verify it boots properly off the SSD, or the hard drive. Ooh. So basically, using a memory disk as a, turning your single disk system into a mirror, where the other mirror, the, the second device, is a RAM disk, um, or a memory block device, uh, removing the hard drive, replacing it with a new one, resilvering from memory back to the new disk, uh, and then fixing the boot code and rebooting, and having... Basically swapping out the only disk in your uh, machine uh, without having to actually power off. That's an interesting way of uh, solving that problem. <laughs> it's, it's perfectly acceptable. And if you want to follow along, then there's a gist where you can see the commands that she used. And along with the YouTube video. Yeah, I'm not sure if you should try this at work or at home even. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> But you have the video to prove that it's working. Yeah, but basically, you can see here, uh, they replaced a failing SATA DOM with a new SSD without actually having to power the machine off. <laughs> Certainly a nice way of uh, proving yet another uh, ZFS feature. I've I've done the same thing with a, a 32 gig USB stick before when I needed it. Yeah, same, same thing. Well, I didn't quite go as far as this one does, <laughs> but this one is very cool.
All right, time for the feedback and questions in this week's episode. Uh, always be the person to send us questions and something to have in this part of the show, because otherwise it will be very empty and the short, uh, because people have written to us or told us at conferences that they are actually looking forward to this section uh, always and the questions that people ask. So all the questions that we should cover should be sent to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Otherwise, uh, people don't have anything to look forward to. Uh, Moritz is someone who has written in before and he couldn't get enough of it. Uh, he has a question about arm builds. Uh, he writes, what's the currently recommended way to build images for ARM-based single board computers? Crushed seems out of date and unmaintained. Nobody answered my PRs on GitHub. Uh, who can I ping about this? Yeah, so good question. Um, it depends what kind of ARM. Um, like a lot of the common ones like Raspberry Pis and so on, there are official images. And so if you just go in the release directory of the FreeBSD source tree, it can already build images for those. And so you can just say, I have this type, build me the image for that and it'll build it out of your modified source tree. Um, but tools like Crochet and um, Poudreware are very nice. I've been using Poudreware a lot to build images. I've not really tried to do much for ARM on it, although you can use it to build ARM uh, packages, and so you can build ARM system images with it as well. Um, but yes, I was under the impression that Crochet was probably the right tool. I see it's been a couple of months since the last time anybody committed something to it. Uh, it seems like the main person uh, maintaining it was Brad, uh, and I don't know that he's doing much work on ARM currently. Uh, but there are other people who are, uh, and so you might be able to get somebody's attention. I don't know the best person to tell you to talk to. You might try the BSD MIPS channel on EFNet. Uh, despite the name MIPS, it's also where all the ARM people hang out. All the embedded folks. Because possibly the best person to ask about ARM stuff is uh, Emmanuel Vadu, Meno. And I'm guessing he does Poudreur because he's done uh, helped a lot with that. Um, but he probably could tell you the way he builds the images, which is probably the most effective way. Or check out how the uh, official images are built, uh, because the make files are there. That's the main release system. It's just, if, if you have a different single board computer, Obviously, the Raspberry Pi image isn't helpful to you necessarily. Yeah, sure. I looked at the one of the PRs you had, and it was like a, a small one-line change. So I don't think it's uh, that big of a deal. And, you know, your change not being merged yet isn't really a showstopper for you continuing to use it. Although, yes, uh, somebody should answer your pull request there. Okay, maybe they're listening to this episode and are getting back to it. Yes, sadly, almost everybody I know on FreeBSD is overworked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, multiple hats, multiple uh, projects. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, um, we'll have the word out now and maybe someone will pick it up. So thanks for that question. Uh, next up is Dave. Uh, <laughs> he writes about videos, now that we don't have them anymore. Uh, single line, sentence, or two even. Um, Dave writes, I've been listening since the start and didn't realize you folks did a video feed. I'm a bit slow on the uptake. Yeah, it's been what? Five? No. More years than that. We started in 2013, right? Yeah, it's been a while <laughs> since the videos have been done. Yeah, we've been doing video. We did video for six years and then, then stopped. <laughs> you have a lot of video to rewatch now. <laughs> yes, but you know, a lot of people that automatically download it from iTunes or whatever, uh, which only has the audio version, only know that there's audio. 
So there was video, but it's gone now. You won't miss it because you never had it. But thank you for sticking with us since the beginning. Yeah, that's certainly a dedication. And um, yeah, thanks for continuing to watch or listen even, <laughs> depending on what you want to do now. Uh, but I guess audio is certainly the, the way to go. And then uh, there's Chris. Raspberry Pi 4 question. Raspberry Pi 4 came out recently. Uh, but Chris already wants to know, thanks for continuing to do the podcast. How long do you imagine it will be before FreeBSD supports the Raspberry Pi 4? That was just announced. I was going to get a Pine 64 LTS, but now, damn, I don't know. Hard to say. Um, once some developers have them, it mostly comes down to how different some of the hardware is. Uh, and also how long it takes to get a U-boot port that does the right thing. Yeah. Um, so getting FreeBSD booting on it is the first step. And then it comes down to drivers and it depends what devices are actually on there. Like it has a real gigabit Ethernet controller at this time. Mm. But it depends if it's one that we have a driver for or if it's something new where we're going to need to make a driver. Or if it's, you know, just a slight variation on something that already existed. Uh, it's got USB 2 and USB 3 ports. Uh, which does make it sound quite a bit nicer than the, the older Raspberry Pis I've played with, but I don't know. Um, you might be better off with the Pine 64 that already works. Yeah, if you want to get something done now, then use the Pine. Uh, if you want uh, or can wait a little bit longer, then I'm sure we'll have something soon enough. Because it turns out uh, Andy and Manu and so on are overworked. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> We just mentioned that, and um, but as nice as the Raspberry Pi 4 is, the more uh, people will want to use it, and especially use it with FreeBSD. Or maybe NetBSD beats us to that, and uh, we can use some of their code. We never know. But um, definitely we will mention it when the Raspberry Pi 4 becomes uh, supported, and that pretty much covers our episode for this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, watching is only live on wednesdays uh for like a week or so until the next one but uh listening will uh, be possible for eternity mostly and yeah see you hear you whatever next time bye